Good morning. Today's message is the living word of God. Could you please get your Bibles and open them to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy three sixteen and 17, it says, for all scripture is profitable is all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God can be adequate, equipped for every good work. Three points drawn straight from the text. Number one, the Bible is the highest authority. Number two, the Bible is practical. Number three. The Bible's teaching prepares us to minister to others. So we're going to ask some questions this morning. Who is Timothy? Timothy was from Lystra, a Roman province in the city of Galatia. He was raised by his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois, who were both devout Jews who became believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy was taught the Old Testament scriptures by his mother and grandmother from the time of his childhood. His father was Greek, but he had most likely died before Timothy met Paul. Timothy more than likely became a believer during Paul's first missionary trip to Lystra. The apostle led Timothy to the Lord. During Paul's second ministry trip to Lystra, He chose Timothy to accompany him in his ministry. Timothy was Paul's disciple, friend, and ministry partner for the rest of the apostle's life. Timothy's name means one who honors God. So we're going to look at the introduction of 1 Timothy. The historical background for 1 Timothy is that after Paul's release... From his first Roman imprisonment, he revisited several cities in which he administered, including Ephesus. He left Timothy behind. He left him behind there to minister and deal with issues in the church, such as false doctrine. It was while Paul had traveled on to Macedonia that he wrote the first letter to Timothy to encourage the young preacher who was probably in his early 20s. We're going to look at the introduction of 2 Timothy. The historical background is that in A.D. 64, the Roman Emperor Nero started an empire-wide persecution of Christians. Paul was swept up in the persecution. And unlike his first Roman imprisonment, which consisted of house arrest, his second imprisonment was in a cold Roman cell in chains, and with no hope of earthly deliverance. It was at this point that Paul wrote his second letter and encouraged his friend and brother in the faith to hold on to sound doctrine and stay the course for the true Christian faith. Paul was never released and was martyred under Nero's reign. All scripture is God-breathed. So if we look at our points, we're going to take it straight from the text. All scripture is inspired by God. The word of God is authoritative. The Bible is the highest authority. The Bible is the living word of God. And we're going to read some supporting scripture. So if you could turn in your Bibles to second Peter chapter one. Second Peter one verses 16 through 21 in the context of eyewitnesses, the text says this, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God, the father, such as an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. 
This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Bible is the living word of God. Secondly, all scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. Number two, the word of God is practical. The Bible is the source of true and valuable instruction. And for the supporting scripture, we're going to turn to the Psalms. Psalm 119. We're going to look at Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. And then we'll also be looking at 97 through 105. But first, 9 through 11. The psalmist says this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. And just flip right over to 97. 97 through 105. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the age because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste? Yes, sweeter than honey in my mouth. For your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Bible is the source of true and valuable instruction. Thirdly, all scripture teaches the man or woman of God to be adequately equipped for every good work. So number three, instruction from scripture is to prepare every believer for his or her own ministry. The point of learning from God's word is to live it out or apply it to our lives. And we're going to look at Romans chapter 10. And we'll also look at James, but first Romans 10. And we'll be looking at verses 14 through 17. In the context of talking about the word of faith and how it brings salvation, Paul asks this question from the epistle. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing By the word of Christ. The point of learning from God's word is to live it out or apply it in our lives. So we're going to look briefly at the introduction of the Bible. The Bible was written over a period of approximately 1600 years by 40 different men. The first book of the Bible, Genesis, was written by Moses in 1446 B.C. And the last book of the Bible, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, was written by the Apostle John in A.D. 95-96. The men that wrote the Bible were separated by time. They were separated by geography. They were separated by language. They were separated by demographics. 
They were separated by ethnicity. Despite these significant differences, there is a cohesiveness and commonality to the Bible. And we'll just read some supporting scripture. What does Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 say? God reveals himself in scripture. The text says this. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. If we look at the first verse, we can see the Old Testament. God spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. He spoke through dreams. He spoke through visions. He spoke through the written word, and he spoke in some cases directly. We can look at verse two and we see the New Testament. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. If the Old Testament is God revealing himself, the New Testament is God revealing the son. The Bible was penned by men but written by the Holy Spirit. And God transcends time and geography and language and demographics and ethnicity. God transcends all things. The Bible is the living word of God. It is filled with truth after truth and many evidences to its own reliability. The Bible is filled with scientific evidences, historical evidences, prophetic evidences. The most important evidence is the internal evidence straight from the word of God. But there is also a massive amount of external or extra biblical evidence that supports and corroborates the Bible's claims. Today, we will review briefly a handful of evidences that show the reliability of the Bible. And we will focus our attention on the internal and external evidences for Jesus Christ and the resurrection. So why do we read the Bible? Why do we study the Bible? Well, five reasons why it's important to study uh, the Bible and review the fundamentals of the Christian faith are this. The salvation of the lost. The salvation of the lost. Discipleship and equipping of the saints for ministry. To have assurance of eternal life. To become equipped to minister to others. To know God more deeply. So let's look at the salvation of the lost. First Corinthians chapter two, one, one through two says this. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The focus of Paul's preaching and teaching Two unbelievers was Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for sin on the cross. The focus is always Christ. The salvation of the lost. First Thessalonians chapter two, three through four. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. God has entrusted us. God has entrusted us as believers with the gospel. We are to share it with the lost and the unbelieving. So looking at discipleship and equipping of the saints for ministry. Ephesians chapter four, eleven through 13. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. What for? For the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. God has given us all spiritual gifts. To use in some form of ministry, no matter how that manifests uh, uniquely for each person. We are called to help others to be prepared to minister the gospel. And as believers, we study the Bible to have assurance of eternal life. 
First John five, 11 through 13. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and that and this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. We as believers can have assurance of eternal life. So next, to become equipped to minister to others. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that the man of God, man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Number four is we are to become equipped to minister to others. The Bible is the highest authority. The Bible is practical and its teaching prepares us personally for ministry. And lastly, to know God more deeply. Moses says this prayer in Exodus 33, verse 13. Now, therefore, I pray you. If I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. So as he's praying for himself, he's still pleading for the nation. The only real value in this life is knowing God more intimately so that we can walk closely with him and know his ways. There is no other real benefit Besides knowing God in a meaningful way. Now we're going to take a look at some evidences for the reliability of the Bible. Now, as I said earlier, there are different types of evidences for the reliability of the Bible, including but not limited to scientific evidences, historical evidences and prophetic evidences. Today, we will look at a handful of scientific evidences that clearly demonstrate the reliability of the Bible. To start, we're going to look at Herbert Spencer. Herbert Spencer was an English philosopher, a biologist, an anthropologist, a sociologist, and a prominent classical liberal political theorist who lived in the Victorian era. Herbert Spencer is most well known for the term survival of the fittest. This was coined in his book, Principles of Biology, written in 1864, just a few years after Charles Darwin uh, published Origin of the Species. So this gives us an idea of the kind of contemporaries that Herbert Spencer kept. Herbert Spencer determined that everything that exists fits into one of five categories. Spencer said... Start quotation. Everything fits into one of these categories. Time, force, action, space, and matter. End quote. And he was hailed by the scientific community. And then this statement is affirmed. Stay with me here. In the first law of thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics is a version of the law of conservation of energy. It's adapted for thermodynamic systems. The first law is often formulated by stating that the change in the internal energy of a closed system is equal to the amount of heat supplied to the system minus the amount of work done by the system on its surroundings. Equivalently, perpetual motion machines of the first kind are impossible. Now, I don't care about the science. A lot of that goes right over my head, and I'm sure some of us are like, yeah, that's great. Why do we care? The point is, is that it affirms what this guy said, Herbert Spencer. Everything fits into one of these five categories, time, force, action, space, and matter. For a closed system to sustain itself, that's what you have to have. And it, it's a sustaining closed system. Why do we care? The Bible said it first. Let's look at the first verse of the Bible. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, that's time. God, that's force. Created, that's action. The heavens, that's space. The earth, that's matter. Everything that Herbert Spencer discovered in the 19th century 
was in the verse was in the first verse of scripture recorded by Moses in 1446 B.C., approximately 3000 years before modern science caught up. The Bible says that God created everything. And in saying that the Bible gives us all the categories that exist, not Herbert Spencer. Now we're going to look at the second law of thermodynamics. Just stay with me. The second law of thermodynamics states that the total entropy of an isolated system can only increase over time. It can remain constant in ideal cases where the system is in a steady state or equilibrium or undergoing a reversible process. The increase in entropy accounts for the irreversibility of natural processes and the asymmetry between future and past. Again, I'm not trying to make a, a science lesson. We don't care about retaining the, the science. The, the thing that we want to uh, grasp there is the word entropy. Well, what is entropy? Entropy is the decline of everything, the degrade of everything. Everything is decaying around us. We grow old and we die. Plants die. Animals die. The natural world is in a constant state of decay. And that's a reality they can explain in a law. But modern secular science still can't explain why entropy exists. Why is everything around us dying? What is going on in the natural world? Well, does the Bible have anything to say about it? The Bible has something to say about everything. The Bible said it first. In Genesis 3, 16 through 19, in the context of the fall, after Adam and Eve have eaten the forbidden fruit that they were, for, they were forbidden by God to eat, the Lord says this to the woman. He said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth and pain. You will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, which about which I commanded you saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you and toil. You will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The Bible said it first, Romans 8, 20 through 22. For the creation was subjected, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. If the Bible is simply a book of myths, fairy tales and stories then it is disturbingly accurate in describing what we see unfolding in our current world climate. The biblical worldview best explains the origin of evil and its many symptoms to mankind. It explains human suffering and the inescapable reality of death and decay that we experience in this world. The Bible is reliable the Bible's claims are accurate. Looking at the flood, Genesis 7, 11 through 12 says in the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month on the 17th day of the month on the same day. Here's the key that we want to look at. All the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were open. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. So when Moses wrote this in 1446, he says in the uh, narrative of the flood that the fountains of the great deep burst open. So the Bible is claiming that there's a lot of water below us. And until recently, is that claim accurate? And we know about the earth and the earth's core and crust and all these, you know, science things. Well, what does modern science have to say about it today? This is from National Geographic. This is 2002. National Geographic, ooh, it says the inner earth may hold more water than the seas. This is from March 2002. They're melting rocks. They're doing these things. They're discovering, hey, maybe there's something going on below, below us. This is from Science. Science Magazine, Science Shot. Diamonds suggest presence of water deep within the earth. This is from March 2014. This is, now we're, get, we're catching up to our modern time. What does modern secular science say about the earth and what's inside it? 
The point is, I'm not trying to show you specific science uh, slides. It doesn't matter. The point of these slides is to show that something is happening and they're making these discoveries. Here's Northwestern University. New evidence for oceans of water deep in the earth. Water bound in mantle rock alters our view of the earth's composition. June 2014. So maybe in modern science, they don't know as much as we think that they know. But what they know now, here's here's another one. Last one. Nova. Ooh, Nova next. Huge underground reservoir holds three times as much water as Earth's oceans. Well, where is it? Well, what does the Bible say? The Bible says that it's under us. So a claim that was made in 1446, scientists just now are catching up with what the Bible has already predicted. The Bible has stated that there's there's water below us. Now, oh, now we understand that, yeah, maybe the Bible's right. The Bible is reliable. So next we'll look at uh, dinosaur fossils. Dinosaurs and the discovery of fossils. People have been finding dinosaur fossils for hundreds of years, probably even thousands of years. The Greeks and Romans may have found fossils giving rise to their many ogre and griffin legends. There are references to dragon bones found in Wuchang, Suchin, China, written by Cheng Ku over 2,000 years ago. These were probably dinosaur fossils. Much later, in 1776, I'm sorry, 1676, a huge thigh bone, a femur, was found in England by Reverend Plot. It was thought that the bone belonged to a giant, but was probably from a dinosaur. A report of this find was published by R. Brooks in 1763. So we're finding these giant bones. We have this guy, Brontosaurus. These are huge. These are big animals. Well, what is the why do we care? What, the, what does the Bible have to say about it? From Job. Now, Job is the oldest book of the Bible. And although there's not a definitive date, because we do have a date for uh, the writing of the Pentateuch, the first five books, like we said, it's 1446. Job has been written before this time. And this is what Job has to say. Behold now. And this is the Lord talking to Job. Behold now, behemoth, which I made as well as you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold now, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Let his maker bring near his sword. Surely the mountains bring him food and all the beasts of the field play there under the lotus plants. He lies down in the covert of the reeds in the marsh. The lotus plants cover him with shade. The willows of the brook surround him. If a river rages, he is not alarmed. He is confident, though the Jordan rushes to his mouth. Can anyone capture him when he is on watch with barbs? Can anyone pierce his nose? So the, the archaeological scientific discoveries of mankind are in the Bible written thousands of years in advance. The Bible is reliable. And then our last, last guy to look at, Pythagoras. He's an ancient Greek scientist. He's a philosopher. For any math geeks in the audience, he's the one that developed the Pythagorean theorem, which is a, a squared plus b squared equals c squared. If you want to find one side of a, the length of a three sided triangle. Uh, he reasoned that if the moon was round, the earth must be round. For many, many centuries, it was debated whether the earth was flat or round. Of course, in the 15th century, Christopher Columbus sailed the earth. He proved unequivocally that the earth was indeed round. Well, what does the Bible have to say? Job 26.10 he has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. Proverbs 8:27. When he established the heavens, I was there. And the I is the first person here of wisdom is the one that's talking in Proverbs 8. So wisdom is saying when he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep. The Bible is reliable. From Isaiah 40, 22, it says this. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches 
out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. The Bible said thousands of years in advance that the earth was a sphere. There's no need for the readers of the Bible and believers in God. It was old news that there was in the 15th century that it was proven that the earth was uh, not flat because the Bible said it was the Bible is reliable. Now, saying all that to say, demonstrating the power of Scripture and its practicality and its inspiration and some clearly logical, reasonable evidences for the reliability. Why do we care about all of this? Because we want to answer a question that is the most important question for any man or woman that has ever lived. And certainly for us today's in this uh, world that we find ourselves living in. And that question is, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did Jesus really rise from the grave? The answer to this question can be found in two contexts. From the context of internal evidence from within the Bible and from the context of external evidence from outside of the Bible. Both contexts give an unequivocal affirmation to the reality that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. Internal evidence is the New Testament, which includes the eyewitness testimonies of the gospel. And the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches, as well as the revelation of Jesus Christ written by the Apostle John. Internal evidence is existing, occurring or found within the limits or scope of something intrinsic and something that makes plain or clear an indication or sign without Contradiction. External evidence is situated or being outside of something acting or coming from without or of relating to the world of things considered as independent of the perceiving mind and that which tends to prove or disprove something grounds for belief proof. External evidences are the facts of history like testimonies of secular or pagan historians and archaeological discoveries. Now, a test that something is true is the principle of non-contradiction. The principle states that if a statement or proposition that contradicts or denies itself and is logically incongruous or is in direct opposition between things compared or inconsistent, then it is not true. When we apply the principle of non-contradiction to the internal evidence of Jesus Christ's resurrection, as stated in the Bible, the test is passed. When the principle is applied to the external evidence of Jesus Christ's resurrection, the test is passed. When the internal and external evidences are put side by side, they also pass the principle of non-contradiction together when viewed as one synergistic evidence. Now, on your outline, you have a resurrection chart and up here it looks terrible, but you have it on your outline so you can you can follow along with me. Looking at the internal evidence, the most important evidence is the Bible. What the Bible has to say about it is where we want to put our focus And we'll also look at the external evidences as well. But let's be clear. The Bible is the ultimate authority. It is the highest authority. So looking at the chronology of Christ's resurrection is powerful internal internal evidence on the reality of Christ's uh, resurrection. Now, the books that describe the resurrection of Jesus are the Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew was written in A.D. 50 to 60 by the Apostle Matthew, who was an eyewitness to the resurrection. The Gospel of Mark was written in A.D. 50 to 60 by John Mark, the interpreter and ministry partner of the Apostle Peter. John Mark wrote his gospel based on Peter's eyewitness testimony. The Gospel of Luke was written A.D. 60 to 61 by the physician Luke, also known as Luke, the historian, who was travel. He was a traveling companion and ministry partner of the Apostle Paul. Luke wrote his gospel based on his personal investigation into the resurrection by compiling eyewitness testimonies and the experience that the Apostle Paul had himself with Jesus. 
The Gospel of John was written in A.D. 80 to 90 by the Apostle John. And it was written while he was exiled on the island of Patmos. John wrote the gospel based on his eyewitness testimony. Now, here is the narrative of the appearance, the the appearance one after the other of Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible says about the resurrection. It says that on the third day after his crucifixion, Jesus appeared several times to different people. The first person was Mary Magdalene. Mary witnessed two angelic beings at the tomb of Jesus as she was weeping over the disappearance of Jesus's body. And Jesus appeared to her and had a conversation with her. Jesus then appeared to women who aided and followed Jesus's ministry. After he sent Mary Magdalene to tell his disciples what she had seen. Another group of women arrived at the tomb. Joanna. Salome, another Mary, not Magdalene, and at least one other woman arrived at the tomb and witnessed an angel who sent them off to proclaim Jesus was alive. And Jesus appeared to them on the road as they traveled into town. Jesus appeared next to the apostle Peter. Now, the details of this visit are not described in the Bible, except that it did happen. And when it preceded Jesus's next appearance. You can find this in Luke 24 or 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus appeared next to a man named Cleopas and his friend who were traveling on the road to Emmaus, at which time Jesus spoke with them and accompanied them to their village where he ate with them. Then Jesus appeared to the apostles minus Thomas and spoke with them. He let He let them see his wounds. He showed them his physical wounds on his hands and feet, and he ate with them. Now, eight days later, Jesus again appeared to the apostles, this time including Thomas. He let Thomas see his wounds and physically touch the wound on the side of his body from the tip of the spear that a Roman soldier had pierced him with during the last stage of his crucifixion. Now, over the next few weeks, Jesus appeared several times. First, Jesus appeared to his disciples on the Sea of Tiberias in Galilee, where he spent time with them eating breakfast. And he gave them instructions on caring for and protecting his followers. Next, Jesus appeared to his disciples and a crowd numbering 500 at a mountain in Galilee where he gave a sermon. Third, he appeared to James, the half brother of Jesus. On the 40th day after his appearance, Jesus appeared for the final time, excluding his later appearance to the Apostle Paul uh, during his conversion on the road to Damascus, which can be found in Acts 9. He appeared to his disciples and led them to the Mount of Olives near Jerusalem, where he gave them a command. He gave them a command to go into the world, telling people about the gospel Jesus gave his followers a command to make disciples of all ethnicities and teach them to obey what he had commanded. And they witnessed his ascension into heaven. Jesus would end up appearing over a period of 40 days. He appeared to the apostles as well as others that were not directly involved in his ministry. He appeared physically. He ate And shared meals with them. He stayed in their company for lengthy duration, having conversations and explaining his resurrection to them. Eventually, Jesus appeared to to over to 500 people and gave a sermon where he was visibly seen and heard. At the time, the Gospels were written. Anyone who claimed that Jesus had not risen could be easily refuted Because of the enormous amount of time Jesus had spent with people after his death and the large number of eyewitnesses to his appearances. There are no contradictions with the different eyewitness claims found in the different Gospels. Now we're going to look at the some external evidences, the facts of history. The facts of history exist within and outside of the Bible. There's only one book that predicts future events as history. 
And that book is the Bible. Historical realities, archaeological evidence and the writings and witness of pagan historians affirm the truth of the Bible as historical fact. There have been many secular figures and pagan historians that have written about Jesus's life, about Jesus's crucifixion and about Jesus's resurrection. The first one we'll look at. Is Tacitus Tacitus one of the pagan testimonies involving Jesus was a historian and senator of the Roman Empire. I'm not going to pronounce that name because I I haven't started Greek in seminary yet. You guys go ahead uh, if you want to say it out loud so we can check your pronunciation. Uh, But Tacitus, uh, he was a historian, senator of the Roman Empire. Tacitus wrote two historical volumes named the Annals and the Histories, which span from AD 14 to AD 70, as well as a few biographies later in his life. Tacitus is known as the Dean of Roman Historians. Tacitus describes the group known as Christians with, in quotations, these are from his writings, Christus, who under the reign of Tiberius, start quotation, suffered death by the sentence of the procreator Pontius Pilate, end quotation. This verifies the eyewitness testimonies of the Gospels that state Christ was sentenced to death by Pilate. More specifically, the Gospel of Luke states that Tiberius Caesar was in ruling power at the time over Pontius Pilate. Tacitus is a real world historian existing outside of the Bible that affirms the Bible is true regarding the testimony of the Gospels. And we'll look at this guy, Pliny the Younger. It's a long name. I'll say Gaius. Uh, Pliny the Younger. Another example of pagan testimony is a man named, long name, more well known as Pliny the Younger. Pliny was a lawyer, author, Uh, magistrate of Rome, later served as a procreator of Bithynia and Pontius in Asia Minor. In A.D. 112, Pliny the Younger wrote to Trajan, the emperor of Rome, regarding Christians. He communicated that Christians were unwilling to engage in activities like theft or adultery, and he affirmed they engaged in living godly lives. He also stated, start quote, they sing a song to Christ as to a god, End quote. Pliny also sought advice on how to deal with the the Christians and affirms that Christians were put to death for their beliefs, which included the resurrection of Jesus. Many early Christians would rather be put to death than deny the truth of the resurrection. The letter written by Pliny to Trajan is one of the earliest surviving documents of Rome that refers to early Christianity. Then next, we're going to look at Suetonius. He was a Roman historian who wrote the lives of the 12 Caesars. In this historical work, Suetonius mentions that some Jews were expelled from Rome due to the disturbance to the religious system of Rome because of their worship of Christos or Christ. Moving right along, we'll look at Lucian. Lucian was a Greek novelist, a satirist, rhetorician. He wrote a satire on Christianity that described Christians as, in quotations, this new cult and Christ as, start quotation, the one who was crucified in Palestine, end quotation. Then lastly, we'll look at Josephus, Titus Flavius Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian, a scholar and a biographical writer. In his many writings, Josephus mentioned James as in quotes, starting quote, the brother of Jesus, the so-called Christ, end quote. Josephus wrote specifically on Christ, start quote, as a wise man condemned to die on the cross by Pilate, end quote. And this is the truth challenge. This is the truth challenge. These historians affirm the claims of the Bible as historical facts. 
There are no contradictions between the Bible's claims and the facts of history in any of these cases. The Bible teaches us that God sent Jesus into the world so that those who believe in him will have eternal life. There's only one way. If you could turn in your Bibles to John chapter three, please. And you know where I'm going, church. John chapter three. We know we all know three sixteen. I think there's a lot of atheists that know that verse. I was my I myself knew that verse very well four years ago when I was an unbelieving uh, lost person on their way to hell. I could tell you that verse. I could tell you all about the Christian faith. Was I saved? No. Sometimes we we don't read the rest of it. If we think about God and I ask you to think about God and think of what if you could describe God in one word, what would come to your mind? Good. Say that. Say a word out loud. What, what do you think about God? What's the first word that comes to your mind? Holy. Think about love. God is love. The Bible says so. First John chapter four. God is love. We think about Christ and you think about things in our more recent past, like the Jesus movement and the culture of love and God is love. And but the Bible says that God is the judge. Jesus Christ came as a savior and we are saved if we believe in him because the Bible says so. But the Bible also says that Jesus Christ is the judge of the world. So let's look at the verse. John three sixteen. First, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. But he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the only name of the only begotten son of God. In Romans 10, 9, it says that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, then we're saved. But if you don't believe that, it says that. You're going to be judged. You have a choice that we all have a choice to make. Are you going to face Jesus Christ as your savior or are you going to face Jesus Christ as your judge? Because either way, you're going to face Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess every person that's ever lived. Some of the worst people in our history. Hitler. You think of Osama bin Laden. Think about celebrities. They're all going to sit. They're going to bow their knee and get down on their knees and they're going to confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is the Lord. But are they going to face him as a judge or as a savior? So have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and savior? Do you see the truth in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The word of God has the power to save because Jesus is the word of God. The living word of God. John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, as piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the human heart. So you are going to face Jesus Christ. Are you going to face him as a judge 
or as a savior. As we think about the scripture that we started in today. There's three things that we can affect our lives with that we can apply to our lives. The Bible is the highest authority. The Bible is practical. The Bible's teaching prepares us to minister to others. All scripture is inspired by God, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God can be adequate, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Heavenly, Heavenly Father, God in heaven, we thank you for this day. God, we acknowledge that you are the creator. We acknowledge that you are above all things and in your sight, we are like grasshoppers. We have a creaturely status. And God, you love the world. You love us so much that you sent your son into this world to be murdered and uh, brutally beaten and, and killed on a cross. Uh, you poured your wrath on him. The Bible says that it, it pleased you to crush him. And God, we just thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I pray that we can let these words that we let the words of, of uh, the Bible penetrate us like your scripture says. I pray that you would work in our lives and that we would uh, develop an appetite to read the Bible. That we would put away the things of the world and step away from all of these fancy toys and gadgets and turn all that stuff off and open the Bible and read it so that we can live it out and that we can know you more deeply I pray in the power of the Holy Spirit of your son, Jesus Christ, that you will convict us of our sin, that you will convict us of our righteousness and convict us of the judgment to come. That knowing what's coming, knowing what your word says, that we can change our lives and conform ourselves not to the world, but to the image of your son. So, God, just praying that you'll work in our lives. Uh, God, before we leave, I just want to lift up pastor in prayer that you would be with Pastor Jeff and Lisa um, just keep them safe. Bring them back to us in a few weeks. Uh, God, please be with us as we go out into our work week. Um, just keep us safe. Uh, watch over us and bring us back here next week. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Thank you, folks.